Good morning. It is, uh, it is good to be here. We've had, uh, we've had a lot going on this last little while, and uh, so just a couple of announcements to start. I was just informed earlier, uh, there is supposed to be gray matters happening here tomorrow evening in the church. Unfortunately, um, Will has, has fallen ill. Uh, we can pray for him, but there will be no uh, no gray matters tomorrow. It'll probably be postponed to another date. So uh, I'm sure Ryan and Paul will, uh, will be in touch soon with a, with a makeup date for that. Um, <clears throat> I uh, read this story of a reporter who was interviewing an old man on his, on his 100th birthday. And uh, so a lot of questions to ask this man. It's, it's not often that Someone reaches that milestone. So the reporter asked him, Sir, what would you say you're most proud of in your life? Well, said the old man thoughtfully, I'm proud to say I I don't have a a single enemy in the world. What a beautiful thought. That's that's inspirational, said the reporter. How how have you managed that? Man replied, I've outlived every last one of them. It's impressive to live that long. But as true disciples of Jesus Christ, we're, we're called to do something much harder than, than live to 100. We're, we're called not just to outlive our enemies, but to love our enemies. Love your enemies. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, the old-fashioned kind that are books with paper. Those are great, but I know some of you have them on your phone, so you can look there too. Please turn with me to, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. And just to set this up as you're turning there, at this point where we're going to pick this story up, Jesus has just called, has just selected his 12 disciples, the apostles, And then he goes with them down to a place that is level. In fact, this is what we read in chapter 6, verse 17. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level area or a level place. And for that reason, these verses, the verses that we're going to look at today and the verses that follow, have come to be known as the Sermon on the Plain, P-L-A-I-N, or the Sermon on the Plateau. This is Luke's equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we're not sure if this is just Luke's rendering of the same event or if it's Jesus preaching a similar message. Probably likely that it's Luke's rendering of the same event. But in both accounts, in in Matthew's account that we read, the the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, and here in Luke 6... We, we see the same message, the same very, very difficult command to love your enemies. And uh, so here's what we read. I think we have this on the PowerPoint. And so I'll just go ahead. You can follow along with me. Here's what Jesus says. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, 
And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Love your enemies. To say that that is difficult is an understatement. In fact, this might be the most revolutionary teaching of of any religion or religious leader in all of human history. In discussing the difficulty of this command... Many, many years ago, English writer, philosopher, and lay theologian G.K. Chesterton had this to say about Christianity with this in mind. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Hmm. By the way, he doesn't look that happy in that shot, does he? He's maybe having a bad day. Um, interesting statement, though. I think there's truth to that. We hear that, love, love your enemies. Well, I'm backing away here. Um, there's no commandment of Jesus which has caused so much discussion and debate as this. Now, notice this command is positive. It doesn't say, do not hate your enemies. It says, love them. In Luke 6.31, as we see here, Jesus gives us the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It was a rule which already existed in many creeds, only in its negative form. Hillel, who was one of the great Jewish rabbis, he was asked by a man to teach him the whole law while he stood on one leg. And here's how he answered him. What is hateful to thee, do not do to another. The negative. That is the whole law and all else is its explanation. The Stoics had as one of their basic rules, what you do not wish to be done to yourself, do not do to another. And Confucius said the same thing. He was asked, is there one word which might serve as a rule of practice for all of life? And here's how he answered, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Every one of those forms is is the negative, isn't it? But Jesus' command is now positive. And it's no longer about refraining or holding back from doing bad things when they're done against us, but to actively do not only good things, but the best of all things, which is love, agape, the same word that we looked at last week that we see in Jesus' new commandment in John 13. If you'll recall last week, Jesus said, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, true disciples, if you love one another. We said last week, Jesus was infinitely raising the bar there 
on the old command. The old command was to love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. Well, now Jesus is saying, in essence, who's Jesus? He's God, son of God, God in the flesh. He's saying, love your neighbor, love each other as God himself. Not with a selfish, superficial, feeling-based love like the world, but with the selfless, sacrificial, serving-based love of God that we looked at last week. That is how we're to love each other in the church, love one another here in the body of Christ. That was the context of our discussion last week, Christians loving Christians. But the hardest application of agape, love, is summed up in Jesus' command in our passage this morning here in Luke 6, where he commands his followers, his true disciples, to love your enemies. It's not the natural thing we want to do. It's the supernatural thing we're commanded to do. Because that's what God did through Jesus Christ for each one of us. Expounding on Jesus' new command. Last week, we looked at this in in 1 John 4. John writes this shocking statement. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Sobering statement when we stop and think about it. Because John is saying, if you don't know and show God's love, that's proof that you do not know God, that that you haven't been born again. Because love is the central fruit of the Spirit, which we're supposed to yield when we repent of our sins and surrender in faith to Christ. The Holy Spirit enters uh, our bodies. So if God's love isn't pouring out of us, We need to question if the Holy Spirit has indeed been poured into us. Or what's going on? Are are we shutting him down? Are we pushing him out? Have we just gotten the habit of ignoring him? And I guess that's really my prayer today. Is that uh, God would search our hearts. Convict us where we need to be convicted that we would take a hard look at our lives and the fruit of the Spirit or, or lack of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Because, you see, if they don't know we're Christians by our love, they're not going to know we're Christians at all. It doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter what we call ourselves. In this sermon series, we're considering what it means to be a true disciple. In our, in our passage today, we see that a true disciple of Jesus loves their enemies. So, question is, who are our enemies? <laughs> what do they look like? And how on earth are we supposed to do that? Well, before we consider who our enemies are today, I think it's important to consider the context of the passage and ask who their enemies were, Jesus' original audience, which included his disciples. So starting at verse 27, Jesus gives some defining characteristics of an enemy. Let's look at this here. Here's what we read, beginning at verse 27. Jesus said, love your enemies and 
do good to those who hate you. Okay, simple statement, but very important because Jesus is telling us that an enemy is someone who can hate you. Now, when Jesus' disciples heard the words enemy and hate, it's a given that one group of people would have come to mind, the Samaritans. They were bitter enemies, the Jews and the Samaritans. Racial and religious tension, animosity, and hatred between them was was fierce and long-standing. Both the Jewish and Samaritan religious leaders taught that it was wrong to have any contact with the other group. You weren't even to enter their territory or, or even speak to each other. In short, they were sworn enemies. In verse 28, we see another characteristic of an enemy. Now, an enemy is someone who curses you. Back in chapter, verse 17, we mentioned that this huge crowd had gathered around Jesus on this plain, on this flat area. And that part included in that, in that crowd were Gentiles from the seacoast city, cities of Tyre and Sidon which, by the way, were centers of Baal worship. Okay, this is important because these people in these cities had been a curse to the Hebrews, introducing pagan ideas and practices which which had plagued them for generations. So hearing that word curse may well have brought these people to mind. Hmm. Then we come to verse 28. Jesus says, an enemy is someone who mistreats you. Mistreats you. Little doubt that for Jesus' disciples, the word mistreat would have brought the Romans to mind. Specifically, the Roman occupation troops who ruled the region, mistreating and exploiting the Jews through oppressive taxation and political manipulation. No doubt, they would have come to mind. The the bottom line was this. They had many enemies, the Jews did, and specifically the disciples. Many people would have come to mind when Jesus taught this radical thing, love your enemies. As followers of Christ today, we have enemies too. People who oppose us. People who curse us. People who mistreat us. And yes, even people who hate us. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm, I'm a really nice person. Nobody really hates me. Hold the phone. The word hate also translated enmity, which is where we get our word enemy. It covers a wide range of emotion. From full-out hostility and intent to harm someone to someone who just doesn't like you. And basically wants to make life miserable for you, who stands in your way, who goes against what you want. It's the kind of person who continually opposes you. And that opposition, it can stem from anything, can't it? It can stem from racial, ethnic, or political differences. It can stem from economic, moral, gender, religious, personal, or ideological conflicts. And of course, this pandemic has introduced so many new ideological conflicts that that have pitted friends against each other. 
families splitting them apart, churches, every part of society. So, your enemy or enemies, who are they? Well, as followers of Christ, uh, they could be a, a hard-nosed atheist who, who constantly attacks you in your faith. It could be an antagonistic neighbor. It could be a family member, an ill-tempered spouse. It could be a, someone that you saw last weekend at Thanksgiving. But we need to be careful about putting a bow on the enemy box so quickly. Those, those are obvious examples of people who are sort of just visibly, clearly against us. But let's be careful here. Um, our enemies are not always easy to spot. You see, we, we need to be <laughs> really careful because here's what Jesus says in Matthew's account. He says this, You've heard that it was said, this is a very similar teaching here, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Okay. Jesus here is responding to a misinterpretation of that Old Testament commandment to love your neighbor as yourself that we looked at. Leviticus 19.18. So he, the implication, the understanding that he's responding to is that, hey, as long as you love your neighbor, it's okay to hate your, your enemy. As long as you love your neighbor, that, that's the main thing. But Jesus clearly taught that it wasn't the main thing. <laughs> no, no, no. He taught and, and thought that it was wrong to interpret neighbor as merely a friend or brother because here's what happens four chapters later in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is asked by an expert in the law. He, he's asked a tough question. And, and so the expert of the law is trying to test him, and he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Who do you mean? What do you mean by that? And Jesus answers him by telling him the parable of the Good Samaritan. And here's what we read. The man said, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, here's what we need to remember. The Jews, the Samaritans, were not friends. They were bitter enemies. And here in this parable, the Samaritan loved 
very much in line with what Jesus teaches in, in Luke 6. He loved this man, this Jew, as a neighbor, not an enemy. He loved him in a, in a whole new way. Um, so what Jesus did, we saw last week, he, he kind of raised the bar on the command to love your neighbors yourself. Well, here he's basically getting rid of the bar. The whole category of neighbor just changes. It's no longer about, you know, the, the neighbor, your brother that you get along with. Now a neighbor for Jesus, according to what he teaches here in Luke 10, is anybody, regardless of, of race or religion, anyone who you are in a position to help. Anyone whose need you can meet, even if they're a bitter enemy, that's your neighbor. Okay, so I like what pastor and author John Piper has to say about this. He comments on this, and here's what he says. Jesus doesn't say, I have two commands, one that you love your neighbor this way, and one that you love your neighbor or your enemy that way. No. He's basically saying, love your neighbor even if he is an enemy. Because, frankly, you can never be sure which one's which. The point is, Jesus' disciples cannot be selective about who they love. We are called to love our neighbors, our friends, and our enemies with the agape love of God. Which, by the way, we remember from last week, it isn't a strong feeling of affection as the world defines love, which is so superficial and, and selfish. No, agape love is selfless and sacrificial. It is an act of the will, not the emotions. It means choosing to love the person, regardless of how you feel about it, especially when you don't feel it at all. It's being obedient to Jesus' command. So how do we do that? That's, that's the big question. How are we supposed to do that? What should this look like? Well, back in Luke 6, when Jesus commands his disciples to love their enemies, he explains exactly what it means using verbs. Have you heard that saying, love is a verb? It's true, only I think according to this passage, it's actually many verbs. Love is many verbs. Um, and here's a few that Jesus lays out here for us. Here's what love looks like. Love your enemies is the commanded action, but the other verbs, which are do good, bless, and pray, explain how we are to love our enemies, okay? So first of all, let's just break it down. Really simple here. Number one, do good to those who hate you. You know what this is? This is love in action. Do good to them means treat them well. The meaning in the Greek is do unto them what will be to their advantage, which, by the way, is exactly what the Good Samaritan does for his wounded enemy in Luke 10. It's what the Apostle Paul has in mind in Romans 12 where we read this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right. Um, <clears throat> this is interesting. Loving our neighbors, loving our enemies, loving everyone in between <laughs> means practical acts of goodness 
and kindness, helpfulness in the ordinary things of life. Now, last month, uh, David Cho, who was the pastor of the world's largest church, Yoido Full Gospel Church in Seoul, Korea, last month he passed away. Um, by the way, that church has, I think, about 830,000 members. So I think there's, there's more than, there's a multi-staff there, I think. I don't think it was just, <laughs> but uh, he, he was uh, a, a, an interesting man. I, I want to tell you what his, what his rule was for his congregation. He told them that they were not allowed to witness to anybody until they had performed at least three good deeds for that person. They, they were actually forbidden to mention the name of Jesus until they had first helped that person fix an appliance or, or bring them a meal when they were sick or done something kind for them. Pastor Cho believed that only after three such acts will the, their heart be open to the gospel. Again, he's with the Lord now passed away last month, but wow, I, I thought that is really putting this principle into practice. We love our enemies by doing good to them. Love in action. Well, in verse 28, Jesus gives us another verb. He says, bless those who curse you. This is love in speech, love with our words. The word bless, of course, is the opposite of curse. It means to speak well of, to pronounce good upon someone. So when they curse you, or are a curse to you, you don't just refrain from cursing them back. No, no, no. You bless them back. We're to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, with gentleness and respect. According to Matthew's account of this teaching, it can be as simple as a greeting, right? This is what Jesus said in, in Matthew uh, uh, 5 verse 47, or yeah, 547. He said, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? They, they, do, that, they do that just like we would. Jesus is saying, don't just greet those you know, greet those you don't know. Greet those who are against you. Don't be afraid to do that. But above and beyond just a kind greeting, the best way we can bless through our words is by sharing the word of Christ the good news of the gospel, the living hope that we have in our living Savior, Jesus. Of course, this is what we read in, in 1 Peter 3, 15. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And by the way, hopefully your life has prompted them to ask that question. Hey, what's with your hope, man? What's different about you? He continues, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak, notice the context, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ, i.e. your enemies who curse you, may be ashamed of their slander. Hmm. Even if they throw it in your face, though, the gospel, even if they... They don't want to hear you talking to them about God anymore. You know what we have to do? We have to talk to God about them in prayer. That's the third thing we're called to do. Jesus said to pray for them. Look at this. He said, pray for those who mistreat you. Where the world says, get even, God says, get down on your knees and pray for those who mistreat you. This is love in heart. Wanting their good, 
Now, just to be clear, this isn't praying like, dear God, man, oh, just get that person. Just strike them down. I know some of us have prayed those kind of prayers. It's not what this is about. This is praying for their good. This is praying for their soul. This is praying for their salvation. This is wanting the good for them. And so if there's hate in your heart, if, if you have trouble even thinking of praying for your enemy, you know what we pray? We pray, dear God, soften my heart. Take this away and help me, help me to love this person the way you've called me to. And you call me to pray, so I'm going to pray for their salvation. I'm going to pray that they come to know Jesus Christ as Lord, whether it's through me or someone else. We pray for them. You see, we can't claim to truly love someone in the present if we're indifferent about their ultimate future and the fact that apart from Christ, they're headed for hell. That's the reality. It's great to do good things and be nice. Yeah, that's a part of love. It's great to speak good things, have a kind greeting, share the gospel. But the bottom line is, if they don't come to know Christ, they're, they're lost. They need to be found. You know, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, which reminded us that you can have faith, huge faith that can move mountains. You can, you can give all you have to the poor. You can surrender your body to the flame but you can do it without actually loving at all. And if you do, it's absolutely meaningless. It's worth nothing. Same with this. You can do nice things for your enemy without any genuine desire behind it, can't you? But prayer is talking to God who knows our hearts on behalf of our enemies and praying for their good, for their salvation. Again, that they would repent of their sins and turn in faith to God for forgiveness and be saved. What did Jesus pray from the cross? What did he pray? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Luke 23. Jesus is calling us not just to do good things for our enemies and say good things to our enemies, (laughs) He's calling us to want the best for our enemies and to prove it by praying for them that they would be saved. Okay, so let's bring it together here uh, because Jesus, he gives us two really striking examples. He makes this concrete. He follows up these verbs with these two examples of what he means. In verse 29, let's start with this. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. I always used to picture this as sort of like a a slap in the face. It isn't. The picture here, the the verb and and the word here, so the word translated jaw, it's not cheek, it's jaw. And strike, it's not a slap, it's, it's a violent blow to the head. That's the picture here. It's extreme. The context here is persecution in these verses. Keep this in mind. Um, So Jesus says... (laughs) You turn to them the cheek. If someone strikes you, you don't just not retaliate, which is what Jesus exemplified. No, you turn the other cheek and you entrust them to God's judgment, your enemy. That's, that's what he says. This is what we read in 1 Peter 2. Peter says this about Jesus. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they heaped abuse on him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It's not ours to avenge. In fact, it's ours to pray that that God wouldn't have revenge on them. 
Um, and, then, uh, and then we get this, this next part. Jesus says, if someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So just, again, the picture here, one's cloak and tunic referred to both their inner and outer garments. In short, the basic necessities of life is what Jesus is saying here. We must be ready to give them up, food, clothing, shelter, whatever it is, all for the sake of our enemy. Again, the context here is, is persecution. Just a few verses earlier, this is what we read. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, and when they insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Okay, Jesus is saying we should rejoice when we undergo this kind of treatment for his name's sake. So just to clarify, Jesus, when he says, turn to them the other cheek, he isn't calling Christians to seek out or to stay in abusive situations. The context here, again, is, is persecution for the sake of Jesus' name. And we know we're going to be praying for the persecuted church in just a couple weeks' time. So many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are being persecuted. And this is not extreme. The, the, the description of being hit in the head violently, the, the description of giving everything up. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. This is their daily reality. This, this is their life. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ for them. They're being imprisoned. They're being tortured. In some cases, they're being killed for their faith. And you know what? They're counting it a joy to do so. It's so foreign to us in our North American context, isn't it? But it's the truth. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's, that's the picture. That's what we need to be willing to do. I just want to ask you, I'm, I'm struck by that statement there, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because why? Why? Great is your reward in heaven. That's true for us, my friends. When is the last time that you were so joyful about your salvation that you actually leap for joy? When is the last time you did that? I've been saved. I've, I've been given the gift of eternal life. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. No, this is amazing. I guess I would just say, maybe if that's us, if we've, we've kind of lost that joy of our salvation, <laughs> let's pray, Lord, renew that. Restore the joy of my salvation, of thy salvation. Psalm 51, 12. Restore that to me, Lord. Rather, we've we got to be careful here, too, because this doesn't mean that when we love, we receive the reward in heaven, does it? He's saying, no, 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 no. You've received the reward, right? Through Christ, you've received that. Therefore, because you are so thankful for that, because you're rejoicing for that, what do we do? We love, right? It's not love to get the reward. It's we've been given the reward. Therefore, we love. Therefore, we want other people to know the reward and receive that reward through faith in Christ too. Okay. So... Where, where does this bring us here? Um, here's, here's what I want to come back to. This is what we read in Romans 5, verse 3. Not only so, but 
we also rejoice in our sufferings. This is Paul reiterating what Jesus teaches here. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured his love into our hearts. How? By the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. Um, again, this is coming back to where we started. It's the Holy Spirit of God alone who produces this love, agape, and empowers us to show it, not just to our friends who love us, but to our enemies who hate us. And then Jesus reiterates this command and the greatness of our reward in verse 35. He repeats it. He says, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Verse 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Um, my friends, if we truly love Jesus and belong to him, if, if we've repented of our sins, surrendered in faith to Christ, that means we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. We're sealed by the Spirit. We're, we're filled with the Spirit and are thus able and empowered to obey this command to love everyone from your really nice neighbor to that really evil enemy and everyone in between. Not as we love ourselves, but as God in Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And when people actually see us doing that, when people actually see us loving not only other Christians in the church, like we talked about last week, but loving our enemies with the same love by doing good deeds and meeting the needs of those who don't love us, who, who don't like us, who perhaps even hate us, by number two, blessing with our words those who curse us, and by number three, praying for those who mistreat us. Then may they see and experience the agape love of God on display. When we obey Jesus' command to love our enemies, my friends, we bear witness to the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to save us from our sins. And that good news actually becomes tangible for them, right? Because they, they see it. It becomes convincing, if not compelling. As true disciples of Christ, we're called to love our enemies, not because they deserve it, but because they don't. Because we don't. We don't deserve it. Because no one deserves it. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's not forget that, my friends. But God demonstrates his love for us, us in this. While we were still sinners, that is, while we were enemies of God, enemies of the cross, Jesus Christ died for us. Thanks be to God. And that's so that we could experience God's love and mercy as we do today. And that's how Jesus ends this, this thought. He says, be merciful. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Just as God showed us mercy while we were still his enemies, so we must show mercy to our enemies so that they might become God's friends. Many of you know the incredible story of Corey Ten Boom, uh, whose family all died in the Nazi, Nazi concentration camps for hiding Jews and protecting them in their home. Well, by God's grace, of course, Corey survived those atrocities. And after the war had ended, the, the camps had been liberated. Corey went around speaking in various churches, sharing about God's love and faithfulness. 
in her best-selling book, The Hiding Place, she shares this, this story, and I want to close with this. She says this, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. And he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. And he said, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. To think that, as you say, Jesus has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I, I struggled to raise my hand, but I, I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And then I took his hand, and the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges but on God's. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. My friends, God is the source of agape love. No one else. God and God alone. And his supply never runs dry. So when we have trouble loving someone, loving our enemy, showing them mercy, let us remember the mercy that God has shown us and the price Jesus Christ paid for your sins and ask God to help us love and forgive as he has loved and forgiven us. And surely he will supply our need. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in obedience to Jesus' command, let us love our, our neighbors with the agape love of let us love our enemies and our neighbors with the agape love of God by doing good to those who hate us blessing those who curse us, and praying for those who mistreat us, so that by our love and witness to Christ, our enemies might become his friends, sons and daughters of the Most High, and true disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you for your word to, to us today. Father, it is hard. In fact, uh, it is impossible for us to do this on our own. But thank you, Father, that you have not called us to. You've given us the command and you've given us the power to fulfill it by your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, have your way in and through us as your followers, 
as followers of Jesus, may we be conduits of your love and of your grace and of your mercy to the people in this world, whether they are our neighbor or our enemy. The bottom line is, Lord, we are called to love them. Father, we're, we're going to not feel like doing that. You know that. But Lord God, this is not a love based on feelings. This is a love that you empower us to do. It's a love that, that we have to obey. We have to obey and submit to your spirit. So Holy Spirit, have your way in us. Have your way in this church, Father God, that, that we would take seriously what we've heard here today, that we would not merely listen to it and so deceive ourselves, but do what it says by the power of your spirit. Father God, help us love our enemies as Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. This uh, morning, as we uh, respond to the word that we have heard, we're going to sing uh, Shine on Us. Uh, as uh, we have just heard, it's, it takes the Holy Spirit, and it certainly takes a provision of God's grace. Uh, to be able to put into practice what we have heard this morning. So as we sing this, let's keep that in mind. As we ask the Lord to let his light shine on us. And as we ask the Lord to let his, his grace uh, fall on us. On the third verse, we're going to sing it differently. We're going to say, Lord, let your love come over them. And when we say them, we're going to have in mind those people that are difficult to love our enemies. We're going to keep that in mind. And so we're going to sing this as a prayer, not only to receive God's grace to do what we've been taught this morning, but to actually see that come to pass, to see the love of the Lord uh, come through us and to uh, our enemies. So would you join me as we do that? And if you can, would you stand with me as well as we sing this prayer to the Lord this morning?
of life to find our way in the darkest night let your grace fall on us and now we sing let your love come over them So let it be. And now receive the Lord's blessing. This is from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. God bless you all this week.